Built Not Born, episode 41. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest is Richard Bressler. Richard Bressler is a pioneer in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and the author of the book Worth Defending. Richard literally went first. Richard was the first American student of Brazilian slash Gracie jiu-jitsu in America. In our conversation today, Richard and I discuss what it was like being part of the first Gracie garage, training with legends with the likes of Elio Gracie, Horium, and Hickson Gracie. Richard speaks of what it was like helping finance not only the first Gracie Academy, but also the very first UFC. Richard tells some amazing stories of the early days of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, from him picking up fighters at the airport to wiping off blood at the mat at UFC 2. It was such an honor to have Richard on the show. I hope you enjoy. So, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Richard Bressler, the very first American student of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and author of the book, Worth Defending. And remember, life is built, not born. Richard Bressler, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Honored to have you on. Richard, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? Who am I? That's a that's an interesting question. Maybe we'll get back to that. What I do is I teach jujitsu, and I'm very passionate about jujitsu. Have been from the day of my very first class. It was just one of those things that when I walked into Horian's garage, I went from the first a few minutes of being scared to all of a sudden just really excited about learning something like this. Dealing with fears as a kid, it's just something that stuck to me. So what I do is I try to pass along whatever it is that I was taught to help someone else learn. I want to get into what it was like literally to be the first American student of Horion and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in America, which is just incredible. Get into some of the awesome stories from the book that you wrote, Worth Defending. But before we do that, I want to start all the way back from the beginning. Where did you grow up? Chicago. Born in Chicago in 1951. My dad was part of uh, Bressler's Ice Cream, which was a well-known in the Midwest, especially in Chicago, Illinois. We also had Bressler's 33 Flavors, which our competition was Baskin-Robbins. We also had Henry's Drive-In Hamburger Stands. My dad opened through the Midwest. My dad was the youngest of six boys, and one of them died right around when I was born. And my dad was the baby. He couldn't get along with his brothers. So he left the ice cream company to move out west in 1960. My dad knew the hamburger business, and he opened up in North Hollywood, which was his baby for 20 years. So he came out here, moved into the valley. I started working for my dad ever since I can remember. I mean, like some guys, like Horian was, they started out, all those boys in the Gracie family started out on the mats. 
I, when I was old enough to go in and work the grill and flip a hamburger, that was me. And I stayed in that business from about the age of 10 to about 30. I, I find 10 years old, a very formative time in people's lives. What was it like around the dinner table for you when you were 10 years old? Who was there? What was going on? Could you describe the scene? It was mostly at 10 years old. My younger sister was nine. My older sister was about 12. And my younger brother was probably two. So it was us and my mom. My dad was always working. My dad wouldn't get home usually till, you know, 11 o'clock in the evening. So it was just her trying to deal with us. And I, I don't have a lot of memories around the dinner tits. It just, it's interesting that you ask that because I can't really remember much. What's the most powerful memory or vivid memory of your childhood? Gosh, probably how scared I was as a kid. Really? How so? First of all, being sensitive because it's it seems like the guys, they didn't really appreciate sensitivity when you were young. I was prime target for a bully mm -hmm. in school because I, I just, I felt a little different. So I was dealt with fear as a kid. Mm -hmm. That's why jujitsu was so impactful. Who was your biggest influence? Who did you look up to when you were young? I don't really remember anyone that I looked up to. So okay. you're talking about like a young Teenager, young kid, 10, 12 years old. You know what? I, I didn't really have anybody in my life that I looked up to. Let's get to the book, Worth Defending. I just finished it. Fantastic. One of the things mentioned, maybe the tie-in to your journey in jiu-jitsu to where we're speaking of now, your younger years, you mentioned your dad. You may have struggled with your relationship with your dad. You shared in the book. Maybe he was a little hard on you. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Could you sure. My dad... It's like I was being primed for, he wanted me to take over the family business. My dad, his way of making me better was to criticize things that I, in the business. Basically, I don't remember much of the stuff home as a kid, but working with him, my dad would walk in the door when I was running the place. He would always just say, if the door was open, he would say, why is the door open? Mm -hmm. Why is the light on? Ask questions that, you know, which gate. And after a while, I started giving them really sarcastic answers because how can you ask, why is the door open? Because we forgot to close it. I don't know why the door is open. Just shut the damn door. Is the light on? Turn it off. Instead of asking questions like that, I, I, I didn't know how to do it. So I developed, I learned how to develop a very sarcastic edge to me, which to this day, I still have a little bit. And a lot of people don't know how to take it's, it. It's sometimes it's hard on people. That was my thing with my father. He was constantly criticizing me, thinking that he was making me better. Meanwhile, I was building all sorts of resentment toward him that I didn't understand. I just like, why is he so freaking critical of me? Mm -hmm. After a while, that gets so hard. When someone is so hard on you, if you read any a psych book, it's two positives for every negative. If you're teaching someone in jujitsu and the technique, hey, this is good, great here. Hey, tweak this, but keep going. There's positive, maybe a tweak, 
and then more positive, you just go negative. <laughs> you just lose them. The student's never going to come back. But if it's your kid or your brother or sister, get out of here. After yeah. a while, you're like, I'm out of here. And you just go the complete other direction. Probably in the late 80s, I started listening to self-improvement stuff. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy by the name of Brian Tracy, who was, sure. you know, the Absolutely. name Brian? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I started listening to Brian Tracy. And one of the things that he said, which I went back to my dad, I says, hey, dad, instead of catching me doing things wrong, I says, why don't you catch me doing things right? And my dad, it wasn't a positive answer. But I met a brilliant therapist back in the, gosh, the early 80s. One of the things that I did when I went and saw him, because I was doing drugs and I thought the problem were drugs. And I, and by the time I had seen this guy, I had really gotten off like the cocaine and the quaaludes on a regular basis. I was just smoking pot, mm-hmm. which was just irritating habit. I would go in and see this therapist and I'd complain about my dad. And he'd say, well, Richard, what do you want? And I'd say, I want him to change and I want him to do this. And, and, it, and he says, so let me get this right. He says, if your dad changed, then you would be fine. And I said, yeah. And he says, I can tell you how to change your dad. He leans in like I'm doing right now. And he says, I can tell you how to change your dad. I'm like, do you want to know? And I'm like, hell yeah, I want to know. All this time here, I'm an adult. And you're going to tell me this one little easy thing to change my dad. And he goes, yeah. He says, are you sure you want to know? He says, because I guarantee your dad will change. And I said, yeah. And he looked at me and he said, change yourself. And I've given this advice out and people go, it's not that easy. It is that easy. It's simple advice that takes, we have to get out of the habit of arguing with somebody. We go through patterns with people and this guy taught me how to do things. So I started realizing that if I changed my response to my father, which took coaching, my dad had to change Mm -hmm. because I wasn't acting like a kid anymore. And all of a sudden, my dad started respecting. It was like night and day. One of my favorite quotes of the book, Worth Defending, you write, if you want things to be different, you have to be different. Yeah. It's around the money. It's so much easier to change yourself because you control yourself, but you don't control others. You can't control, you can't change somebody else. And it takes practice. I just started listening to a book by a chiropractor named Joe Dispenza. It's called How to Change Your Brain. And one of the things that he, he says something very similar to this. And I was talking to a buddy of mine who's a jujitsu black belt, Chris Saunders. And we were talking. I said, this is more than just reading a book. I said, if you really want things like that to happen, I said, it's just like jujitsu. You have to practice. And you got to practice on a regular basis. And the more you practice, the more you're going to change. Mm-hmm. So it's just like jujitsu life, like jujitsu, like life, you have to work at it or nothing happens. Hoping is not a strategy. Let's fast forward a little bit. There's some point before you met Hordeon, you said you had a substance abuse where you went from quaaludes to cocaine to marijuana. You were in that cycle, right? I was using all three. All three. How'd you get there? What do you think led to all that? Oh, I was smoking like most kids and people say, oh, it's a gateway drug, marijuana. I mean, it's only a gateway drug if you're unhappy in your life. But I think anyone who is happy who smokes pot is just going to, they're going to be happier. So I I was smoking pot. I still wasn't happy. And then I was working at my dad's hamburger store in Topanga Plaza. And I took a break and I went over to one of my buddies 
who worked at another shop there. And when I walked in to see him, he goes, hey, Richard, I got this stuff, some cocaine. I've never tried it. He says, you want to try it? I went like, yeah, sure. And I went and tried it. And I went back to work and I had all of a sudden had all this energy and really talkative. And I went back there and 20 minutes later, I had to call him back and go, hey, dude. I said, that was great, but I'm really, (laughs) I want some more. So I started, I ended up starting to buy a little bit and just started using a little bit here and there. But, and then one thing led to another and I did a Quaalude and the more unhappy I became, the easier it was to escape using a Quaalude or a pot or whatever. And then pot just became a habit that because I didn't really enjoy it, but I just, it just became a habit. I did Quaaludes and cocaine probably for pretty regularly for a couple of years. And then I wanted to change and uh, I got into therapy and I started changing. And then I met Horian. You meet Horian. Can you give a quick story on how selling a waterbed led to meeting Horian and becoming the first American Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu student? Yeah, I came home from work. I, I got an extra mattress from this friend of mine that worked in a waterbed store. And I had an extra one and I put an ad in the recycler, which was the one ads back then. And Horian's roommate answered, left a message on my machine. I got home. Saw the message, called him, Horian answered the phone, telling me that his roommate was the one that called and I was about to hang up and he said, but I'm looking for one. I told him, I said, I have one. He came over to the house where I lived and I sold him the the mattress. I sold him three sets of sheets for $5 a set. I wanted $15 a set. He said, look, how about all three sets for $15? And I went, wow. He was already a wheeler dealer then. And I was balking and he goes, look, you never know when it'll come back to you. So I said, okay. And then as we're walking out, he, he asked me if I've ever done any martial arts. And then he explained that his family has been doing jujitsu for 65 years in Brazil and they're champions. And why don't you come by for a free class? I went for the class and it was so much different from anything I've ever heard about or imagined because back then. No one was doing grappling arts. It was all standing. You're you're a karate guy, you said. Back, uh, back in the day. Yeah. So, yeah, well, back in the day, that's what there was. Uh, it was karate, kung fu, taekwondo, tung su do, whatever. So I expected to go into this guy's place and ha, which it was so much different than I imagined. It. And I just liked the attitude. I liked the teaching uh, style. And then I liked the, the glass of watermelon juice after the class. We got to get to the watermelon juice, but wow, it's such like when you describe Horian in the book, calm, cool, relaxed, not explosive, just like chill. Like he has that calm confidence uh, and that demeanor. Talking about serendipity, you run into him, you become his first student. After you make the transaction for the waterbed and sheets, he invites you to his garage. So you walk in, what's your first impression? There was a mat. There was also, he had to separate a certain area of the garage, like the tools and whatnot. He had a little sheet covering up to make it look a little more professional, like it was a jujitsu school. Mm -hmm. So I just saw, kind of saw that. And then I saw a club and a a knife and a fake gun on the wall. (laughs) And the thing is that, and I got scared because I went, Oh my God, that's a knife. This guy 
I don't really know this guy. What if he kills me? No one knows that I went over here. That's where my brain went. And one of the things that he told me is that people are afraid anyways when they walk in for a first class that with really little or no experience, they don't know what to expect. And I had no idea what to expect. And I was calm after a couple of minutes because of his demeanor. You wind up not only being his first student, you become, you guys hit it off, you become roommates. Right? Oh, yeah. A year later, when okay. I was not happy in my living, I lived with talent agents. Okay. And we were all doing drugs. We were all partying and I wanted to change. I, I talked to my therapist and he said, yeah, it's probably a good idea. And then I was talking to Horian about what was going on in my life. I said, I really need to get away from these guys. I need to get a new place. And he said, I need to find a new roommate. And he goes, Richard, I'm looking for a roommate. Let's get a place. And I was shocked that he, he said, let's get a place. And so we started looking around and found this place known as the garage in Hermosa Beach. And he couldn't get the place. He needed my credit to get it. But he, he was willing to do what it needed to be done, which I guess included living with somebody who was doing drugs. For people that aren't familiar with Jorion Gracie, he's the oldest son of Grandmaster Elio Gracie. He basically brings Bra Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Gracie jiu-jitsu from Brazil to the United States, lands in LA slash Torrance. You meet him, you become his first student. Within the course of a year, you become roommates. And then I see in the book, one thing blew my mind. In the first week, you said when you opened that first garage, you had Hordeon, Elio, Hickson, all there. Am I missing anyone? Yeah. Crazy. Carl Carlos Gracie Jr. Wow. All there. Sharing the mat. First week that we moved in, they came and spent the week with us. Horian, Elio, Hickson, Carlos Gracie Jr. Yeah. <laughs> that so, is insane. That is crazy. What I know. I like? mean, I mean that, what? you know what? It, it, because of the state of mind that I had back then, because of doing, because I was still doing drugs. I, I just remember that when we ate, there was a lot of laughing. And those guys were always laughing. There was, and, and who knows, maybe they were laughing because of I was high and they had no idea. So they, who knows? But anyways, it was always jovial. And then going down to the garage, getting a class with, getting to roll with uh, Hickson a couple different times, getting a class with Elio. And I even had a class with Carlos Gracie Jr., which, you know, but it was the one with Hickson and Elio that really stuck in my mind. I think the first time I've ever heard of you years ago, you posted a video of you and Hickson rolling like black and white. <laughs> and then you might've said something sarcastic. Oh, here's me beating up Hickson or something like that. And a yeah. whole bunch of people lost their mind. I know people just, I was a blue belt and, and Hickson was like 19 years old. I mean, what, what chance did I have? The biggest compliment I ever got was, Someone said that was Halls and Hicks and Rowling. Oh, wow. What a compliment. Crazy. Yeah, no, no kidding. Two questions. So one thing I always hear in your book and even in Hickson's book, Breathe, they mentioned that Hordian is known as the best teacher in the family. Like he's just an amazing teacher. And Hickson, like the greatest practitioner of it in this prime, he was like just the, uh, just a freak of nature. So getting to Hordian, what made him such an amazing teacher? I think it's his sensitivity 
for the art, because one of the things that Horian would do as we're rolling, as we're, as he's showing me a move, he would ask the question that I was thinking. And, and, and I've learned to do the same thing because it, it's the natural progression. When you know something so well and someone's going to ask that or they're thinking it, you ask the question for them. And he just had that sensitivity to, to rolling. He, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to really explain, but there's just, it's a gift. And, and I, one of the things that I've learned to, that even before I started teaching formally, because I was, I had so many classes with Horian and I helped him out with so many privates that when I started teaching one of my friends who was a chiropractor, he told me I was a good teacher. And I said, oh no, I'm not a good teacher. And he says, yeah, you are. And then I learned to formally teach after that. But it's just something that I realized that I have a gift and he helped make that gift. It's something that I love doing. I want to teach as long as I can. That's great. You mentioned two things. He had a sensitivity. You said the best teachers have the empathy because they could see the art through other people's eyes. He asked a question that you were thinking and he had an awareness, like maybe someone that hasn't been doing this since they were four, this is what they would struggle with. It sounds like he has a high level of sensitivity, empathy, and awareness. Do you think that's fair to say? Yes. That's awesome. Then getting to Hickson, of a family of just killers in jiu-jitsu, I remember Hoist, even after he won a couple of UFCs, I remember Hoist saying, Hickson is 10 times better than me. I think that's the exact quote. Hoist would say Hickson would always tap him out, even when he was winning the UFCs. What made Hickson so different than everybody else from um, your perspective? I would probably have to say having Pauls as a teacher. Remember, Hickson was, it was probably Halls that was the best. And then for a while, and then, and Hickson was rolling with him. Mm-hmm. And then Halls met his demise early, probably at his prime, even though Hickson says in Breathe, I think that Halls wouldn't tap him anymore mm-hmm. at, at a certain point. Mm-hmm. But he just, he had a physicality also about him, just that he learned to get control of his breathing. He was always moving in a way that made him cat. It was, he, that was his gift. I understand. He had Halls, awareness. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned in the book that Halls also invited you to hang glide. <laughs> <laughs> when I was in Brazil in 81, he asked me if I wanted to hang glide in it. And I didn't know really, I heard of, of Halls, but I just went, no thanks. I didn't know much about him. And all of a sudden, this guy wants me to jump off a mountain with him. I was like, I don't think so. One other story to touch back on. You mentioned when you took your first trip to Brazil in 81, and you went to the store and you had a bodyguard, a 19-year-old bodyguard. Who was that? <laughs> I found that pretty funny. Yeah. In Brazil, I mean, walking around the streets, the guys were saying, you got to be careful. And I felt like... I don't have to be careful. I'm walking around with Hickson Gracie. Who the hell is going to mess around with me? And Hickson at that time, I think Hickson was probably 20. And and I didn't speak Portuguese. He didn't speak English. And I remember what his wife at the time, Kim, sent us to the store. And we're just walking down there. And I felt so confident 
walking down the street with him. It's just, it was Hicks and Gracie. Uh, that was great. That's yeah, there, there was a story that, that I had heard from somebody else that about the Gracies and that Hoyler had a Rolex watch stolen out of his car. So it turns out the guys that stole it, they heard it was Hoyler Gracie's and they didn't want to get their ass kicked or find out who did it. They brought the watch back to him just because they found out who it was. Wow. So, so that's the kind of thing. So people have any idea who Hicks and Gracie was at that time. They're not going to mess with him. That's respect. And they're, they're returning Rolex watches just on name alone. That is that, <laughs> yeah, pretty definitely. impressive. Let's fast forward a little bit. So Horian's trying to spread the art. You mentioned in the book, Worth Defending. How would you go and spread the art? Put it that well, Horian really did not want to make enemies. And he started to make enemies because he would go in. And because he had such belief in, in jujitsu, he would tell the guy, look, I'd like to show you what we have. Let's share. And when the, the karate schools or wherever the stand-up, they're all going to be doing Roughly the same thing. Orian told me, he says, the difference between karate, kung fu, taekwondo, whatever. He says, one holds their hand like this. One holds their hand like this. One holds their hand like that. He says, the point is, they're all going to be striking. He says, we're not going to strike. He says, why do I want to take a chance of striking against another striker? They can be faster. They can be more powerful. He said, and I'm going to get hit. He explained this to me. And he said, but I don't want to make enemies. So Richard, why don't you? He says, okay, if you make enemies, you can go in and find a fight for me. So I would go out and I'd go to I, everybody that I got a chance to talk to. I would talk about this guy from Brazil that does jujitsu. And like I told Henner and Hidon in the interview that I did last month with them, I would become an instigator. And here on was saying that he almost had a problem with that because I wanted the karate guy, we'll call him karate for the striker, to really have that, I want to see this guy's ass get kicked. And knowing that he wasn't going to kick Horian's ass and Horian wasn't going to kick his ass. The thing is, because of the way Horian handled the challenges, anyone who ever challenged him didn't get hurt. He says, what do the guys have to lose? To come in, they don't know they're not going to get hurt, but that's the way it was. So I always felt confident and I wanted to see that. I figured that was my little hitch to see if I could get somebody just to see if appealed to their ego. Man, let's see how good your art is. Go kick this guy's ass because he's got a big mouth. Mm -hmm. And different people, guys boxing or whatever, they'd come over to the garage and we would, they, he would do his thing and with the same result over and over again. You mentioned the book where Horian would like be rolling with these people and like sparring them, and he would look over to you and say armbar, and then he would well, armbar. That was in the that was in the judo school. Okay, we went to a judo. Gene LaBelle had a uh, judo club, and also one of one of his students at the time was John Saxon from Enter the Dragon, and John was I think he was a brown belt in judo, and he invited. Corian over and I had no idea I just know these guys were on the ground grappling and I went oh man this is going to be a challenge and then when Horian would be rolling with the guys he'd be looking at me and looking around the room to see who's the toughest guy and then he would tell me he would mouth out like I'm going to get him in an arm lock I'm going to get him in a choke and I would watch him 
And I'm like, yeah, sure, Horry. And all of a sudden, he started catching these guys left and right. And I was like, son of a bitch. This was, I, I was just, I was blown away. Two of the things I find just fascinating in the book, you were involved in two of the biggest moves in jiu-jitsu. One, you helped finance or at least loan the money to open up the first Gracie Academy. And then also the UFC, you were a part of that. Do you speak to each of those stories real quick? Sure. Horian came to me one day after he had four garages going, you know, teaching private classes. The Machados were in one, Hoyler, Hickson, and Hoyce. And he was getting, at this time, we were doing some seminars. We did a couple on the East Coast, one in Parsippany, one at Hunter College, which I guess Steve Maxwell went to. He came to me, he says, look, Richard, if we're going to get any bigger, and this is probably early 1989, he says, I, we have to get a school. And I said, yeah, I agree. He says, to get a school, we're going to need to get money. And so I said, I agree. And then he looked over at me and he did this. So what are you saying, Horian? And he says, come on, Richard, I know you got money. And I wasn't so sure. And he said, look, if I can get 60,000, the bank is going to give me 60,000. So I had 40,000 at the time. And I said, okay. And then I went to my parents and borrowed 20,000 from them. And they asked what it was for. And I told them, they, they looked at me like, what? And I had other people telling me, don't do it. You're going to lose the money. And, and I just felt like so positive about this, that we got the 60,000 and him and I went to the bank and got the other 60 from them and found a location and the Gracie Academy was born. Wow. Fast forward to late 80s, early 90s, when you get to the UFC, Corian has this idea of challenging other arts to display the efficacy of jujitsu. We had the Gracie challenge ever since I was around, but then at the academy, they had the Gracie Challenge where basically, you know, people with the students that we had, more people were inviting other people in. He also had a, a student that he was teaching named Art Davey, and Art was a promoter. So Art and him got together, and Art just, let's, you know, find a way to do this big time. And they were doing this in Brazil already, the Valley Tudo. And so... Art and him, they needed to raise money. Of course, they had a meeting where I was there and they said, so I think my parents were there too. I put in 10,000, my parents put in 10,000 and we just thought, wow, this could be really good. <laughs> it was for somebody else, but. <laughs> Can you imagine how big it became? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, being at the first three or four UFCs, and the budget that we had then, we had no budget. UFC 2, the first one I think hit on was wiping the blood off the mats. And people didn't, they didn't want to see a 10-year-old kid in there. So I was promoted. I would pick up guys, the fighters from the airport. And then the night of the fight, I was the designated blood wiper in UFC 2. You have all this history with Horion. And at some point you mentioned in the book, you both went your separate ways over a misunderstanding. Can you tell a quick story of that, just how that happened? I got injured a few months before, or not even a few months, maybe a, a month or two before the actual separation. And guys were leaving that weren't happy there. Um, a good buddy of mine, Lowell Anderson, he left. And Horian back then in 1996 the, the latest technology was the CD-ROM. 
he had VHS tapes for teaching, but he could do a CD-ROM and they were doing shooting different angles. You'd show a move over here and then you can take to the CD-ROM and you can switch it to it. So they were filming this and I was teaching the morning classes, the evening classes and my privates. And I had an injury and I wanted to get it treated by the work that I eventually learned to do myself. So when I, I told Horian, I said, I have a, a, an appointment. And he goes, Richard, we, we have a time crunch. We got to get this done. And I said, Horian, I'm in pain. I really need to get treated. And long story short, he just said, look, he said, if you go, don't come back. And I was like, come on, seriously? Anyways, I went, I came back. And here he had no one to teach the class. So when I got back, there was someone to teach the class. And he said, you're injured. You shouldn't be teaching. So I, long story short, I ended up staying there for a few days and then I was let go. And then fast forward to Fabio Santos calls you up and you basically got your black belt over the phone. You mentioned in the book. <laughs> you tell that story. First person I ever met got their black belt over the phone. Yeah. Yes. He just said, I can't believe that Horian didn't give you your black belt. And he said, I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> so basically, I could have gone down to, to San Diego. It's like a two and a half hour drive. Okay, I was lazy, El. And he just said, look, go to the store and get a black belt. And the martial arts store, they wouldn't even give me a belt. They said, you have to have a certificate. I'm like, what? I said, you have no idea who I am and, and, and who gave me this and where it came from. And they said, sorry, no certificate, no belt. So I ended up getting a black belt. I took one of the black belts because I, I was teaching over at Krav Maga. And I took one of the black belts. They gave me one of the black belts. And I started wearing that. That's fantastic. Right over the phone. And then fast forward, you mentioned the book. 31 years later, you get a call. I think maybe Huron called you. You're asked to come back for a promotion event at the Academy. Yeah, Huron called me and said, hey, we're having a presentation for my father. And he said, we'd like you to, to be there and maybe say a few words. And he said, will you come? And I said, sure. So I put my gi on and I went to the room and I'm sitting there, bell promotions. And I'm like getting ready to say my thing. I thought they were going to present Horian with something. And, and he said, and then Horian comes to the microphone and says, yeah, I'd like to bring Richard Bressler up here. And I realized as soon as they did that, and then he pulled up, I had a black belt and he he said, look, this is long overdue. So he gave me, you know, the official Gracie black belt. Wow. What'd that feel so, like? so I have two black belts in jujitsu. How many do you have? None no, yet. It, 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 it felt really good. It felt there's always a thing like like you don't deserve. And then I want all sorts of questions like, why didn't I get it earlier? And but I, I was ultimately I was thankful. Jitsu does that where it introduces you to yourself and you have all this stuff in your head. Like, I just love when you go on the mat, you're, it, it, you can't think about yesterday. You can't think about tomorrow because if you do, you just get destroyed. As you're rolling, jujitsu gives you a great present moment awareness. Like when you're on the mat, it's nothing but you and your opponent or like the drill you're doing. And it's such a cleansing. It's like yoga for the mind. Yeah, I get destroyed anyhow, but it's yeah. still you're in the moment getting destroyed. As you get older, you have to come to terms where I still want to be better than I was yesterday, but I have to accept the fact there might be a 25-year-old wrestler, blue belt, who's 60 pounds heavier than me that's going to tap me today. You know, right. and, and, 
Phil and Rick Migler, at Balance, have a sign that says, please leave your shoes and ego at the door. Enter with the beginner's mind. And you just have to lose that ego or at some point, you'll just never step back on the mat. Sure. I'm telling guys all the time. I'd always tell the guys, I'd say, hey, man, leave your ego at the door. He said, even leave your strength, leave your speed at the door. Every gift that you have, leave it, put it to the side for just a few months. He says, once you start to learn the technique, if you're strong, if you're fast, that's going to help with your technique. Mm -hmm. And I recently went to one of the guys that I used to teach back at the Gracie Academy in 1995 by the name of Sean. He contacted me early last year. I got an email from Krav Maga and said, hey, some guy is trying to contact you. He said he was a student. So I said, yeah, the guy is now a black belt, had a black belt for a couple of years. First of all, when I left the Gracie Academy, I opened up Beverly Hills Jiu-Jitsu with Lowell, and he followed me over there. And then we were there for a short time, and then we left. He left. He went to the Machados, and then from the late 90s to present, he's been about eight different schools. Mm -hmm. And he contacted me, and I said, dude, you're a black belt. You're 46 years old. And he said he wanted privates with me. And I went like, and when I think of a black belt who's... 25 years younger than me, who is 30 to 40 pounds heavier than me. I'm like going, I don't know what you're going to learn, but I'm not sparring with you mm -hmm. because I don't want to get, and he says, Richard, he said, no one teaches the way you teach. You have a defensive mindset. You teach very technical. He said, that's what I want. I'm, I'm starting to help out teaching. I want to learn the way that you used to teach back then. Mm -hmm. So he came over. I think he came in. I gave him a class and then he helped out with my class that I was there. I ended up teaching a seminar for him up three hours in Central California. And him and I have been talking ever since every couple of months. He comes down, takes classes with me. I saw Sean that day, mm -hmm. but I saw the way Chris Howder, he went over Chris. They, he came down because of friends wanted to have a seminar with Chris, mm -hmm. like a private class, a semi private. And Chris, I went over there to meet him and Chris is talking and Chris is probably 57. So I still have about 14 years on him. And Chris also weighs probably about maybe 170. And he's talking about how his jujitsu has changed. And as I'm listening to him, watching him do certain things in the mat, I told him in the class, I said, from right now, Wait another 13 years, your jujitsu is going to change even more. Yeah. Because I don't think about attacking anymore. There's a slight thought, but my biggest concern is just being able to defend myself. That's where it's at right now. When you get up to 70 and you're 135 pounds, mm -hmm. and most of the guys, which is thin for 5'10, you have to have a mindset of being defensive. And so you got to leave it at the door. And that's the one thing that I can do is like, I have my defense and that's the L.U. Gracie mindset mm -hmm. fighting off your back, which most guys don't do. They're not taught to do that anymore. In the book, you mentioned the value of just being able to defend yourself to survive where you can roll with someone for six minutes and they're 50 pounds heavier and 15 years younger and they don't submit you. That's a victory. Yeah. 
That's a victory. I'm just getting there now where like I'm training with some really good purple belts, really good blue belts that wrestled their whole life. They were 60 pounds, 10 what, years younger, 60 what pounds. Belt uh, what uh, belt to you? Brown. A few years back, I would get a little frustrated that maybe there was a submission there. I saw I just couldn't pull it off. But like now if they come at me and I, I hold them off for six minutes uh, and there's no submission. I'm like, that's a victory. I walked out of there. Like that's, there's no reason I should not be submitted. Just the principles of jujitsu are the only thing that kept me from getting submitted there. Because if it wasn't for that, they would probably submit me in about 20 seconds if, if I didn't know anything. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, Joe, how old are you? Right, 50. 50. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's kind of like the, the age that you kind of start at every age you start to go through. At least I did. I got really selective in my late 30s who I would roll with mm-hmm. and stayed that way. And probably until mid fifties. And then I started doing less and less and less because I didn't want to get, I don't want to get hurt. Here's something I struggled with where you're teaching a class, especially down the city you're teaching in Philly, there's 20 people in class. And at the end you do a open mat and every 25 year old wants to roll with you. And they're all like jacked up, they're ready to roll. And I'm like, oh, and if I know them, I'll go with them. I'm like, oh, this guy's cool or she's cool. I'll go with them. If they're new, they came from another school. I don't have a good vibe with them. Like before I would go with them, but now I have the confidence to say, you know what? Not right now. My question to you is how did you handle that when you would run into something like that? Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I just, you know, I would, I would do positional stuff, Mm -hmm. but I would not roll because it's just one of the things that just teaching a class. Morian always told me, he said, Richard, keep a smile on your face, but keep an eye on them. First of all, you don't know what people will do accidentally, and you don't know what their thoughts are. You don't really know what their intention is. And I thought preservation. A lot of guys that are younger than me have had back surgeries, shoulder surgery, knee surgery, hip surgery. Because of my, the, my own pain that I've had in the past and the work that I have done and understanding muscles and the spine and how we get injured, I decided that I wasn't going to roll hard anymore. And then it, after I did, I've spent hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on, on therapy because I don't want to go under the knife. It depends. I see guys that, that are... 15 years younger than me that go harder and they, their hands are mangled from grabbing the gi and their ears are messed up. So you can tell your listeners they're nice. Nice, nice clean ears. When I got hurt, when I had an injury, I rest, I learned to rest. I realized how hard jujitsu was on the body. Jiu-jitsu, like you look at it, to me, it's like the infinite game. There's an author called Simon Sinek wrote a book called The Infinite Game. And the the game is not meant to be won or lost. Just to continue playing is the victory. And if you can keep training two, three, four times a week, like drilling, showing up, maybe doing some light rolls. I think here I just call it, keep it playful. Like just go like kind of flow. If you could do that 50, 60, 70, that's the victory. That's the medal I want on my wall. Where you're doing that 50, 60, 70 years old. Uh, and Phil and Rick have a guy, Willie, uh, who's 74, 75. He's still on the match doing the kind of jujitsu you said. He has select training partners, shows up. He's a real baller. And it's just like a real inspiration. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Before we move on, what made you finally kick the, the drug habit? Where did you finally say, you know what, enough's enough, I'm out? 
Do you remember that moment? I just wasn't happy with who I was. Living with Horian and seeing the lifestyle that he portrayed, he would only eat good food. Mm-hmm. The guy was always happy doing what he wanted to do. And I used to resent him sometimes just because I would be sitting on the couch doing drugs when you're not high. You're not a happy person most of the time. And I'd be sitting there moping. Horan would walk in the door and he would look at me and he'd say, and his name is Mr. Richard Bressler. And, and, and I'm like going, screw you, dude. But even though I was saying that, I realized that I wanted to change. There was something before any kind of change takes place. There's usually something that says, yes, I want to be different. So when I left Horian's after a year and living with Horian, and then I moved out just before Hiran was born, I got an apartment with a buddy and uh, down the street, still doing drugs, but I was in therapy and I wanted to change. I, would, I was focusing on, okay, I don't like this anymore. And all of a sudden I found different ways and my focus was to stop and have a healthier lifestyle. When I met this one therapist by the name of Dr. Dossi, he just said, Richard, focus on what you want. He says, forget about, don't ask yourself a question like, why am I the way I am? If you ask yourself a question, you're going to search for an answer. And if you say, how come I'm so screwed up? Oh, my dad locked me in the closet when I was five years old. And that's why I'm screwed up. And now I have an excuse to be screwed up. Mm-hmm. He said, if you want to be different, focus on what you want. Ask mm-hmm. yourself a question. What's it going to take for me to change? Mm-hmm. So then you search for an answer like that. And that's what I started doing. I started saying, okay, I, I want to be different. And all of a sudden, the drugs took care of themselves. And I was living a healthier lifestyle. Constantly being around Horan, I was thinking good food, good intake for my body. How can I keep doing drugs mm-hmm. when... They don't make a healthy body. Yeah. So I just, it just stopped. Congratulations on that. That is not easy to do and you pulled it off. So congratulations. That, that is phenomenal. I I think if people have a a really, if they have the right kind of therapist and a right, a goal setting mentality, when they want to stop, that's what I think is really needed. How about as you look forward ahead, we talk so much of the great history. If you look from this point forward, What's the most exciting project you're working on now? I'm not really working on a project, although I'm working toward like Sean, his teacher up at Paragon wants to do instructor training and they want to show guys how to teach. And Sean wants to have me involved in that because I recently was up in Washington, got COVID and it, it kicked the crap out of me for about six weeks. So I'm just about back there and I just, and I want to keep doing what I'm doing. I want to be able to keep teaching. I want to teach more. I'd like to do some local seminars. And if anyone wants like interviews, I'm always open to share my story because I really think it's necessary for people to know the history of this art Mm -hmm. because not enough of them do. Sure. So now your job is to get the other half of your students. Deal. How about, which, just out of curiosity, which, with all the history you have, let's say with Horian, what's your relationship with him now? Do you still talk? Yeah, Horian, actually, he called me when I was in Washington. And because I did shoot uh, my part in the UFC documentary back about, gosh, it feels like about four years ago, he was going to do a documentary. 
And they had a few of the guys that were in the the UFC, plus Horian, plus Art. So he had this direct shoot my part. And then just before it was, he was actually advertising it. And just before it came out, the UFC stopped, but they're not going to let him show it, which I don't understand, probably about money. Anyways, Horian called me and he says, look, I have a copy of this. He says, I can't distribute it, but if you want to come over. He says, I'd be happy to show it to you. I'm st- I still talk with Horan. As far as I'm concerned, ever since we had the misunderstanding, we didn't talk for probably about five years. Horan is still like my first teacher, and I have nothing but respect for Horan. Thanks for sharing that. How about last few questions? Is that- one of them who my favorite jujitsu guy is? <laughs> That's one of the questions. Of all the people you've met in Gracie's jujitsu, who is your favorite jujitsu person? Besides Phil Miglaris. Besides Phil Miglaris. <laughs> okay, I just I, don't cut that. Okay, I want Phil to hear it. That is going to be in. From all your experience teaching, what type of values do you try to pass on to your students? It's doing the right thing and also learning to relax and not take things so serious. If you ask any of my students, what's the one word you'll hear most of, from me? They'll all like when a in a new class when there's other people there and I'll say, guys, what's the one word? And they'll all say it at the same time going, relax. It's just, it's a mantra. And I probably have this because of me. I need to hear it as much as anybody. And I think we all need to hear it because especially nowadays, we're living in such a crazy world right now and we all need to chill and relax a little more. Agreed. Last few questions. If you could go back and talk to the people that were around that dinner table, we started the conversation with at 10 years old, your two sisters, your brother, your mom, what would you want to tell them? I'd want to say, look, I'm sorry for what I'm going to go through and all the drugs and, and the embarrassment that may bring. That dad was a really good man who just had his way of showing love and showing he cared because of the things that I realized early on, but didn't understand. My dad's mother died when he was nine years old and he was in an orphanage for a couple of years. He really had a, even though he came up in a family that became very wealthy, the first part of his life was very, he had to learn to live without, mm-hmm. you know, as a kid growing up, he had struggled for everything. Yeah. So. Thanks for sharing that. How about last question? If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? Oh, you know what? It would probably be relax. Relax. That's uh, about as good as a spot to end as any. So when I'm with this quote, one of my favorite from the book, self-defense is not just a set of techniques. It is a state of mind and it begins by believing that you are worth defending. That's the title of the book, authored by Richard Bressler. If you go to richardbressler.com, which Phil Migler-Reese made the website for me. So if people are looking for you online, richardbressler.com. And you can find me at Facebook. You can find me on Instagram. I'll post all those links on the show notes. But Richard Bressler, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for writing that book. Thank you for being first. Someone always got to go first. 
before the masses follow, and you were the first student in America to train Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. So, uh, dude, much respect. Wish you much success, health, happiness. Keep rocking. And if I'm ever out in LA, man, would love to take a class with you. It'd be an honor. Yeah, it'd be great. I look forward to it. Thank you. Appreciate it.